Book 15, Chapters 8 through 14 of The City of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider, www.logoslibrary.org. The City of God by St. Augustine of Hippo, Book 15, Chapter 8. At present it is the history which I aim at defending that Scripture may not be reckoned incredible when it relates that one man built a city at a time in which there seemed to have been but four men upon earth, or rather indeed but three, after one brother slew the other. To wit, the first man the father of all, and Cain himself, and his son Enoch, by whose name the city was itself called. But they who are moved by this consideration forget to take into account that the writer of the sacred history does not necessarily mention all the men who might be alive at that time, but those only whom the scope of his work required him to name. The design of that writer, who in this matter was the instrument of the Holy Ghost, was to descend to Abraham through the successions of ascertained generations propagated from one man, and then to pass from Abraham's seed to the people of God, in whom, separated as they were from other nations, was prefigured and predicted all that relates to the city whose reign is eternal, and to its king and founder, Christ, which things were foreseen in the Spirit as destined to come. Yet neither is this object so effected as that nothing is said of the other society of men which we call the earthly city, but mention is made of it so far as seemed needful to enhance the glory of the heavenly city by contrast to its opposite. Accordingly, when the divine scripture, in mentioning the number of years which those men lived, concludes its account of each man of whom it speaks, with the words, And he begat sons and daughters, and all his days were so and so, and he died, are we to understand that because it does not name those sons and daughters, therefore, during that long term of years over which one lifetime extended in those early days, there might not have been born very many men, by whose united numbers not one but several cities might have been built? But it suited the purpose of God, by whose inspiration these histories were composed, to arrange and distinguish from the first these two societies and their several generations, that on the one side the generations of men, that is to say, of those who live according to man, and on the other side the generations of the sons of God, that is to say, of men living according to God, might be traced down together, and yet apart from one another, as far as the deluge, at which point their dissociation and association are Exhibited, their dissociation, inasmuch as the generations of both lines are recorded in separate tables, the one line descending from the fratricide Cain, the other from Seth, who had been born to Adam instead of him whom his brother slew, their association, inasmuch as the good so deteriorated that the whole race became of such a character that it was swept away by the deluge, with the exception of one just man, whose name was Noah, and his wife and three sons and three daughters-in-law, which eight persons were alone deemed worthy to escape from that desolating visitation which destroyed whole men. Therefore, although it is written, And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived, and bare Enoch, and he builded a city, and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch, it does not follow that we are to believe this to have been his firstborn, for we cannot suppose that this is proved by the expression, He knew his wife, as if then for the first time he had had intercourse with her. For in the case of Adam, the father of all, this expression is used not only when Cain, who seems to have been his firstborn, was conceived, but 
also afterwards the same scripture says, Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived, and bare a son, and called his name Seth. Whence it is obvious that scripture employs this expression neither always when a birth is recorded, nor then only when the birth of a firstborn is mentioned. Neither is it necessary to suppose that Enoch was Cain's firstborn, because he named his city after him. For it is quite possible that though he had other sons, yet for some reason the father loved him more than the rest. Judah was not the firstborn, though he gives his name to Judea and the Jews. But even though Enoch was the firstborn of the city's founder, that is no reason for supposing that the father named the city after him as soon as he was born, for at that time he, being but a solitary man, could not have founded a civic community, which is nothing else than a multitude of men bound together by some associating tie. But when his family increased to such numbers that he had quite a population, then it became possible to him both to build a city, and give it, when founded, the name of his son. For so long was the life of those antediluvians that he who lived the shortest time of those whose years are mentioned in Scripture attained to the age of seven hundred and fifty-three years. And though no one attained the age of a thousand years, several exceeded the age of nine hundred. Who then can doubt that during the lifetime of one man the human race might be so multiplied that there would be a population to build and occupy not one but several cities? And this might very readily be conjectured from the fact that from one man, Abraham, in not much more than four hundred years, the numbers of the Hebrew race so increased that in the exodus of that people from Egypt there are recorded to have been six hundred thousand men capable of bearing arms, and this over and above the Idumeans, who, though not numbered with Israel's descendants, were yet sprung from his brother, also a grandson of Abraham, and over and above the other nations which were of the same stock of Abraham, though not through Sarah, that is, his descendants by Hagar and Keturah, the Ishmaelites, Midianites, etc. Chapter 9 Wherefore no one who considerately weighs facts will doubt that Cain might have built a city, and that a large one, when it is observed how prolonged were the lives of men, unless perhaps some skeptic take exception to this very length of years which our authors ascribe to the antediluvians, and deny that this is credible. And so, too, they do not believe that the size of men's bodies was larger then than now, though the most esteemed of their own poets, Virgil, asserts the same, when he speaks of that huge stone which had been fixed as a landmark, and which a strong man of those ancient times snatched up as he fought, and ran, and hurled, and cast it. Scarce twelve strong men of later mould that weight could on their necks uphold, thus declaring his opinion that the earth then produced mightier men. And if in the more recent times, how much more in the ages before the world-renowned deluge? But the large size of the primitive human body is often proved to the incredulous by the exposure of sepulchres, either through the wear of time, or the violence of torrents, or some accident, and in which bones of incredible size have been found, or have rolled out. I myself, along with some others, saw on the shore at Utica a man's molar tooth of such a size that if it were cut down into teeth such as we have, a hundred, I fancy, could have been made out of it. But that, I believe, belonged to some giant. For though the bodies of ordinary men were then larger than ours, the giants surpassed all in stature. And neither in our own age, nor any other, have there been altogether wanting instances of gigantic stature, though they may be few. The younger Pliny, a most learned man, maintains that the older the world becomes, the smaller will be the bodies of men. 
and he mentions that Homer in his poems often lamented the same decline, and this he does not laugh at as a poetical figment, but in his character of a recorder of natural wonders accepts it as historically true. But, as I said, the bones which are from time to time discovered prove the size of the bodies of the ancients, and will do so to future ages, for they are slow to decay. But the length of an antediluvian's life cannot now be proved by any such monumental evidence. But we are not on this account to withhold our faith from the sacred history, whose statements of past fact we are the more inexcusable in discrediting, as we see the accuracy of its prediction of what was future. And even that same Pliny tells us that there is still a nation in which men live two hundred years. If, then, in places unknown to us men are believed to have a length of days which is quite beyond our own experience, why should we not believe the same of times distant from our own? Or are we to believe that in other places there is what is not here, while we do not believe that in other times there has been anything but what is now? CHAPTER Ten. Wherefore, although there is a discrepancy for which I cannot account between our manuscripts and the Hebrew, in the very number of years assigned to the antediluvians, yet the discrepancy is not so great that they do not agree about their longevity. For the very first man, Adam, before he begot his son Seth, is in our manuscripts found to have lived two hundred and thirty years, but in the Hebrew manuscripts one hundred and thirty. But after he begot Seth, our copies read that he lived seven hundred years, while the Hebrew give eight hundred. And thus, when the two periods are taken together, the sum agrees. And so throughout the succeeding generations, the period before the father begets a son is always made shorter by one hundred years in the Hebrew, but the period after his son is begotten is longer by one hundred years in the Hebrew than in our copies. And thus, taking the two periods together, the result is the same in both. And in the sixth generation there is no discrepancy at all. In the seventh, however, of which Enoch is the representative, who is recorded to have been translated without death because he pleased God, there is the same discrepancy as in the first five generations, one hundred years more being ascribed to him by our manuscripts before he begat a son. But still the result agrees, for according to both documents he lived before he was translated three hundred and sixty-five years. In the eighth generation the discrepancy is less than in the others, and of a different kind. For Methuselah, whom Enoch begat, lived, before he begat his successor, not one hundred years less, but one hundred years more, according to the Hebrew reading. And in our manuscripts, again, these years are added to the period after he begat his son, so that in this case also the sum total is the same. And it is only in the ninth generation, that is, in the age of Lamech, Methuselah's son, and Noah's father, that there is a discrepancy in the sum total, and even in this case it is slight. For the Hebrew manuscripts represent him as living twenty-four years more than ours assigned to him. For before he begat his son, who was called Noah, six years fewer are given to him by the Hebrew manuscripts than by ours, but after he begat this son, they give him thirty years more than ours, so that, deducting the former six, there remains, as we said, a surplus of twenty-four. CHAPTER Eleven. From this discrepancy between the Hebrew books and our own arises the well-known question as to the age of Methuselah, for it is computed that he lived for fourteen years after the deluge, though scripture relates that of all who were then upon the earth only the eight souls in the ark escaped destruction by the flood, and of these Methuselah was not one.' 
For according to our books, Methuselah, before he begat the son whom he called Lamech, lived one hundred and sixty-seven years. Then Lamech himself, before his son Noah was born, lived one hundred and eighty-eight years, which together make three hundred and fifty-five years. Add to these the age of Noah at the date of the deluge, six hundred years, and this gives a total of nine hundred and fifty-five from the birth of Methuselah to the year of the flood. Now all the years of the life of Methuselah are computed to be nine hundred and sixty-nine. For when he had lived one hundred and sixty-seven years, and had begotten his son Lamech, he then lived after this eight hundred and two years, which makes a total, as we said, of nine hundred and sixty-nine years. From this, if we deduct nine hundred and fifty-five years from the birth of Methuselah to the flood, there remains fourteen years which he is supposed to have lived after the flood. And therefore some suppose that though he was not on earth, in which it is agreed that every living thing which could not naturally live in water perished, he was for a time with his father, who had been translated, and that he lived there till the flood had passed away. This hypothesis they adopt, that they may not cast a slight on the trustworthiness of versions which the church has received into a position of high authority, and because they believe that the Jewish manuscripts, rather than our own, are in error. For they do not admit that this is a mistake of the translators, but maintain that there is a falsified statement in the original, from which, through the Greek, the scripture has been translated into our own tongue. They say that it is not credible that the seventy translators, who simultaneously and unanimously produced one rendering, could have erred, or, in a case in which no interest of theirs was involved, could have falsified their translation, but that the Jews, envying us our translation of their law and prophets, have made alterations in their texts so as to undermine the authority of ours. This opinion or suspicion let each man adopt according to his own judgment. Certain it is that Methuselah did not survive the flood, but died in the very year it occurred, if the numbers given in the Hebrew manuscripts are true. My own opinion regarding the seventy translators I will, with God's help, state more carefully in its own place, when I have come down, following the order which this work requires, to that period in which their translation was executed. For the present question it is enough that, according to our versions, the men of that age had lives so long as to make it quite possible that during the lifetime of the first-born of the two sole parents then on earth, the human race multiplied sufficiently to form a community. Chapter 12. For they are by no means to be listened to who suppose that in those times years were differently reckoned, and were so short that one of our years may be supposed to be equal to ten of theirs. So that they say, when we read or hear that some man lived nine hundred years, we should understand ninety, ten of those years making but one of ours, and ten of ours equaling one hundred of theirs. Consequently, as they suppose, Adam was twenty-three years of age when he begat Seth, and Seth himself was twenty years and six months old when his son Enos was born, though the scripture calls these months two hundred and five years. For on hypothesis of those whose opinion we are explaining, it was customary to divide one such year as we have into ten parts, and to call each part a year. And each of these parts was composed of six days squared, because God finished his works in six days that he might rest the seventh. Of this I disputed according to my ability in the eleventh book. Now six squared, or six times six, gives thirty-six days, and this multiplied by ten amounts to three hundred and sixty days, or twelve lunar months. 
as for the remaining five days which are needed to complete the solar year and for the fourth part of a day which requires that into every fourth or leap year a day be added the ancients added such days as the romans used to call intercalary in order to complete the number of the years so that enos seth's son was nineteen years old when his son canaan was born though scripture calls these years one hundred and ninety and so through all the generations in which the ages of the antediluvians are given we find in our versions that almost no one begat a son at the age of one hundred or under or even at the age of one hundred and twenty or thereabouts but the youngest fathers are recorded to have been one hundred and sixty years old and upwards and the reason of this they say is that no one can beget children when he is ten years old the age spoken of by those men is one hundred but that sixteen is the age of puberty and competent now to propagate offspring and this is the age called by them one hundred and sixty and that it may not be thought incredible that in these days the year was differently computed from our own they adduce what is recorded by several writers of history that the egyptians had a year of four months and the acarnanians of six and the lavinians of thirteen months the younger pliny after mentioning that some writers reported that one man had lived one hundred and fifty-two years another ten more others two hundred others three hundred that some had even reached five hundred and six hundred and a few eight hundred years of age gave it as his opinion that all this must be ascribed to mistaken computation for some he says make summer and winter each a year others make each season a year like the arcadians whose years he says were of three months he added too that the egyptians of whose little years of four months we have spoken already sometimes terminated their year at the wane of each moon so that with them there are produced lifetimes of one thousand years by these plausible arguments certain persons with no desire to weaken the credit of this sacred history but rather to facilitate belief in it by removing the difficulty of such incredible longevity have been themselves persuaded and think they act wisely in persuading others that in these days the year was so brief that ten of their years equal but one of ours while ten of ours equal one hundred of theirs but there is the plainest evidence to show that this is quite false before producing this evidence however it seems right to mention a conjecture which is yet more plausible from the hebrew manuscripts we could at once refute this confident statement for in them adam is found to have lived not two hundred and thirty but one hundred and thirty years before he begat his third son if then this mean thirteen years by our ordinary computation then he must have begotten his first son when he was only twelve or thereabouts who can at this age beget children according to the ordinary and familiar course of nature but not to mention him since it is possible he may have been able to beget his like as soon as he was created for it is not credible that he was created so little as our infants are not to mention him his son was not two hundred and five years old when he begat enos as our versions have it but one hundred and five and consequently according to this idea was not eleven years old but what shall i say of his son canaan who though by our version one hundred and seventy years old was by the hebrew text seventy when he begat mahalaliel if seventy years in those times meant only seven of our years what man of seven years old begets children chapter thirteen but if i say this i shall presently be answered it is one of the jews lies this however we have disposed of above showing that it cannot be that men of so just a reputation as the seventy translators should have falsified their version 
However, if I ask them which of the two is more credible, that the Jewish nation, scattered far and wide, could have unanimously conspired to forge this lie, and so, through envying others the authority of their scriptures, have deprived themselves of their verity, or that seventy men, who were also themselves Jews, shut up in one place, for Ptolemy king of Egypt had got them together for this work, should have envied foreign nations that same truth, and by common consent inserted these errors, who does not see which can be more naturally and readily believed. But far be it from any prudent man to believe either that the Jews, however malicious and wrong-headed, could have tampered with so many and so widely dispersed manuscripts, or that those renowned seventy individuals had any common purpose to grudge the truth to the nations. One must therefore more plausibly maintain that when first their labors began to be transcribed from the copy in Ptolemy's library, some such misstatement might find its way into the first copy made, and from it might be disseminated far and wide, and that this might arise from no fraud, but from a mere copyist's error. This is a sufficiently plausible account of the difficulty regarding Methuselah's life, and of that other case in which there is a difference in the total of twenty-four years. But in those cases in which there is a methodical resemblance in the falsification, so that uniformly the one version allots to the period before a son and successor is born one hundred years more than the other, and to the period subsequent one hundred years less, and vice versa, so that the totals may agree, and this holds true of the first, second, third, fourth, fifth and seventh generations in these cases error seems to have if we may say so a certain kind of constancy and savours not of accident but of design Accordingly, that diversity of numbers which distinguishes the Hebrew from the Greek and Latin copies of Scripture, and which consists of a uniform addition and deduction of one hundred years in each lifetime for several consecutive generations, is to be attributed neither to the malice of the Jews, nor to men so diligent and prudent as the seventy translators, but to the error of the copyist who is first allowed to transcribe the manuscript from the library of the above-mentioned king. For even now, in cases where numbers contribute nothing to the easier comprehension or more satisfactory knowledge of anything, they are both carelessly transcribed, and still more carelessly amended. For who will trouble himself to learn how many thousand men the several tribes of Israel contained? He sees no resulting benefit of such knowledge. Or how many men are there who are aware of the vast advantage that lies hid in this knowledge? But in this case, in which during so many consecutive generations one hundred years are added in one manuscript, where they are not reckoned in the other, and then, after the birth of the son and successor, the years which were wanting are added, it is obvious that the copyist who contrived this arrangement designed to insinuate that the antediluvians lived an excessive number of years only because each year was excessively brief, and that he tried to draw the attention to this fact by his statement of their age of puberty, at which they became able to beget children. For lest the incredulous might stumble at the difficulty of so long a lifetime, he insinuated that one hundred of their years equalled but ten of ours, and this insinuation he conveyed by adding one hundred years whenever he found the age below one hundred and sixty years or thereabouts, deducting these years again from the period after the sun's birth, that the total might harmonize. By this means he intended to ascribe the generation of offspring to a fit age, without diminishing the total sum of years ascribed to the lifetime of the individuals. And the very fact that in the sixth generation he departed from this uniform practice, inclines us all the rather to believe that when the circumstance we have referred to required his alterations, he made them, seeing that when this circumstance did not exist, he made no alteration. 
for in the same generation he found in the Hebrew manuscript that Jared lived before he begat Enoch one hundred and sixty-two years, which, according to the short-year computation, is sixteen years and somewhat less than two months, an age capable of procreation, and therefore it was not necessary to add one hundred short years, and so make the age twenty-six years of the usual length, and of course it was not necessary to deduct, after the son's birth, years which he had not added before it. And thus it comes to pass that in this instance there is no variation between the two manuscripts. This is corroborated still further by the fact that in the eighth generation, while the Hebrew books assign 182 years to Methuselah before Lamech's birth, ours assign to him twenty less, though usually one hundred years are added to this period. Then after Lamech's birth the twenty years are restored so as to equalize the total in the two books. For if his design was that these one hundred and seventy years be understood as seventeen, so as to suit the age of puberty, as there was no need for him adding anything, so there was not for his subtracting anything. For in this case he found an age fit for the generation of children, for the sake of which he was in the habit of adding those one hundred years, in cases where he did not find the age already sufficient. This difference of twenty years we might indeed have supposed had happened accidentally, had he not taken care to restore them afterwards as he had deducted them from the period before, so that there might be no deficiency in the total. Or are we perhaps to suppose that there was the still more astute design of concealing the deliberate and uniform addition of one hundred years to the first period, and their deduction from the subsequent period? Did he design to conceal this by doing something similar, that is to say, adding and deducting not indeed a century, but some years, even in a case in which there was no need for his doing so? But whatever may be thought of this, whether it be believed that he did so or not, whether in fine it be so or not, I would have no manner of doubt that when any diversity is found in the books, since both cannot be true to fact, we do well to believe in preference that language out of which the translation was made into another by translators. For there are three Greek manuscripts, one Latin, and one Syriac, which agree with one another, and in all of these Methuselah is said to have died six years before the deluge. Chapter 14. Let us now see how it can be plainly made out that in the enormously protracted lives of those men the years were not so short that ten of their years were equal to only one of ours, but were of as great length as our own, which are measured by the course of the sun. It is proved by this that Scripture states that the flood occurred in the six hundredth year of Noah's life. But why in the same place is it also written, The waters of the flood were upon the earth in the six hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, the twenty-seventh day of the month, if that very brief year, of which it took ten to make one of ours, consisted of thirty-six days? For so scant a year, if the ancient usage dignified it with the name of year, either has not months, or this month must be three days, so that it may have twelve of them. How then was it here said, in the six hundredth year, the second month, the twenty-seventh day of the month, unless the months then were of the same length as the months now? For how else could it be said that the flood began on the twenty-seventh day of the second month? Then afterwards, at the end of the flood, it is thus written, And the ark rested in the seventh month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat and the waters decreased continually until the eleventh month, on the first day of the month were the tops of the mountains seen. But if the months were such as we have, then so were the years, and certainly months of three days each could not have a twenty-seventh day. 
or if every measure of time was diminished in proportion, and the thirtieth part of three days was then called a day, then that great deluge which is recorded to have lasted forty days and forty nights was really over in less than four of our days. Who can away with such foolishness and absurdity? Far be this error from us, an error which seeks to build up our faith in the divine scriptures on false conjecture, only to demolish our faith at another point. It is plain that the day then was what it is now, a space of four-and-twenty hours determined by the lapse of day and night, the month then equal to the month now, which is defined by the rise and completion of one moon, the year then equal to the year now, which is completed by twelve lunar months, with the addition of five days and a fourth to adjust it with the course of the sun. It was a year of this length which was reckoned the six hundredth of Noah's life, and in the second month, the twenty-seventh day of the month, the flood began, a flood which, as is recorded, was caused by heavy rains continuing for forty days, which days had not only two hours and a little more, but four and twenty hours, completing a night and a day. And consequently those antediluvians lived more than nine hundred years, which were years as long as those which afterwards Abraham lived one hundred and seventy-five of, and after him his son Isaac one hundred and eighty, and his son Jacob nearly one hundred and fifty, and some time after Moses one hundred and twenty, and men now seventy or eighty, or not much longer, of which years it is said, their strength is labor and sorrow. But that discrepancy of numbers which is found to exist between our own and the Hebrew text does not touch the longevity of the ancients, and if there is any diversity so great that both versions cannot be true, we must take our ideas of the real facts from that text out of which our own version has been translated. However, though any one who pleases has it in his power to correct this version, yet it is not unimportant to observe that no one has presumed to amend the Septuagint from the Hebrew text in the many places where they seem to disagree. For this difference has not been reckoned a falsification, and for my own part I am persuaded it ought not to be reckoned so. But where the difference is not a mere copyist's error, and where the sense is agreeable to truth and illustrative of truth, we must believe that the divine spirit prompted them to give a varying version, not in their function of translators, but in the liberty of prophesying. And therefore we find that the apostles justly sanction the Septuagint by quoting it as well as the Hebrew when they adduce proofs from the Scriptures. But as I have promised to treat this subject more carefully, if God help me, in a more fitting place, I will now go on with the matter in hand. For there can be no doubt that the lives of men being so long, the first-born of the first man could have built a city. A city, however, which was earthly, and not that which is called the city of God, to describe which we have taken in hand this great work. End of Book 15, Chapters 8-14 through 14. Recording by Darren L. Slider, Fort Worth, Texas, www.logoslibrary.org.